that's something that I've tried to, you know, foster and bring with me is that sometimes we don't know the answers. And I think it's really important to be honest with yourself um, when you're not 100% sure what's going on and really um, treat that uncertainty with a lot of respect. This is Katie Warren, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. And welcome back. You're tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. With additional sustaining support from Gordini, we keep you outside longer. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Additional support for today's episode is provided by Six Point Engineering. Based in Nelson, British Columbia, Greg Johnson and his team merged the disciplines of avalanche risk management, structural, and geotechnical engineering. Find out more explore past projects, and get in touch at sixpointeng.com. Want a new kit from Gordini? Get 10% off your purchase plus free shipping by using the code THEAVALANCHEHOUR10 at checkout on gordini.com. You can also enter to win a full kit of products from Gordini by tagging at GordiniUSA and at the Avalanche Hour podcast in an Instagram post of you and your partners practicing avalanche rescue. The winner will be drawn on January 15th. Well, I hope everybody's doing well out there, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. It's getting to be the busy time for avalanche professionals out there. Many people are finding themselves back in the game here um, as we've had a round of active weather in the last week and a half. Uh, some challenging freezing levels for the Pacific Northwest and beyond. And um, I know other locales are dealing with some tricky persistent slab problems out there. So whether you're rolling out your first avalanche course of the season or opening new terrain in the ski area, highway forecasting or backcountry avalanche advisory forecasting, take your time, take it slow and have fun. We've got a great episode queued up for you today, highlighting the work and story of Katie Warren. Katie's a avalanche forecaster for NWAC, a former ski patroller at Stevens Pass. She's done a bit of work with highway forecasting and avalanche mitigation um, around Stevens Pass. And she has a background in some research around snow and avalanches um, for her master's degree. You're gonna find out all about Katie's story and some insights from her career thus far um, in this episode. But first, we have an update from Janie Thompson-Nolan, the Executive Director of the American Avalanche Association, or the A3. So we're going to jump right in with that update from Janie. All right, we have Janie Thompson-Nolan here from the A3. Janie, how are you doing today? I'm so good. How are you, Caleb? I'm great. It's great to see you. Of course, Janie's the executive director of the American Avalanche Association, the A3. Janie, give us a highlight of of some things that the A3's done in the last year and and what's coming down the road here, what's new for this year. 
Uh, happy to. So A3 has been hard at work on behalf of Avalanche professionals uh, in the industry. Um, we expanded our team by one. So we have a new hire this year. Uh, Jason Simons-Jones joined us as an education manager, and he will oversee A3's REC Avalanche Education Program. Um, so A3 sets the standards and guidelines for REC education in the U.S., and Jason will be full-time monitoring that, working with providers, um, updating proficiencies and guidelines, and kind of just um, getting us on track um, in that area of our work. And he also will be working closely with the motorized community to um, kind of do some more specific uh, education updates around motorized users um, as far as that goes. So that's a big one. Other exciting updates that I think will impact the Avalanche Hour listeners um, is that A3 is in the process of developing a digital application for no weather and avalanche guidelines or SWAG, as we commonly call it. Um, this app will be available on Google and Apple devices. Uh, it's really kind of takes SWAG as we know it now in book form and just transitions it to this digital function. Um, so there's no new information. It's the same information, but it's all now just available at your fingertips. You will be able to use it out of service, which is really cool. It has a Zoom feature, so you can have larger text if you're a person who may need reading glasses. Um, you can kind of zoom in and out. It has a search function. Um, and then it also has a glossary in the back. So if you're looking for specific terms um, or anything like that, you can, you can kind of view that. So we're really excited about swag. It will be available in late December for folks. Um, so keep your eyes peeled on A3 social channels and your member newsletter um, for that release. You had a pretty busy fall, right? But between ISSW and running around to a bunch of different regional snow and avalanche workshops, what were some of your like take homes from from the community from those workshops? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, this fall was simultaneously so busy, but also so awesome. Um, I think any time that I get to, and really my team too, gets to connect with 83 members in person, it's just extra special because so much of our work is done um, remotely and online. So I think just connecting with members was the highlight for me. Um, and I think because ISSW happened, we got to see a significant portion of 83 members at that event. In fact, I think we had like 200 members at our meeting, which is like leaps and bounds more than we've ever had. Um, but to see everyone there and then get to see them at their regional saws was just really great because you felt um, super connected. Uh, and then I think just the caliber of uh, presenters at the saws, I was impressed by. I think I didn't know what to expect on an ISSW year, but everyone um, in terms of the local like hosting committees did a great job of getting great speakers in. And so I think it's a true benefit to those regional and local communities. And A3 was super proud. I think we, I attended like seven saws this year, but we supported, um, I think we've donated or sponsored 11 saws this year, which is something we're super proud to do and um, happy to partner on. Yeah, great. Such great events there. Um, you know, I think by the time this comes out, most of the scholarship deadlines will have come and gone, but maybe just kind of highlight what A3 is doing with some education scholarships. Totally. Well, not all scholarships will have come and gone. The women's specific BCA scholarships 
are not due until December 15th. So those scholarships, if you're listening to this, go apply. There are three $1,500 scholarships, and they can be used for a Pro 1 or a Pro 2 course, and they are for female-identifying A3 members. Um, So take a look at our website. Um, All the scholarships are listed. And then the other scholarships that will have already been due, but um, we're still super excited to talk about are the David Pettigrew Memorial Scholarship, which is a $2,000 scholarship for uh, A3 members in the Pacific Northwest. Um, And that will, I don't know if it'll be awarded yet, but it will have been um, probably selected at that point. And then the last scholarship piece is the A3 Board of Directors Scholarship. And this is a new one that we started last year. And it's actually um, one Pro One $1,500 scholarship and a Pro Two $1,500 scholarship. And both of those will have been due already, but um, hopefully we'll be announcing who received them. Yeah, cool. And then the VEASAN scholarship too, right? Yes. And the VEASAN scholarship was due um, in mid-November. And actually, I have a fun meeting with the VEASAN team tomorrow to select our recipients. So uh, stay tuned for, for actually, by the time this comes out, you'll probably know who got that scholarship. But um, there's two $1,500 VEASAN scholarships, and one is reserved for underrepresented individuals within the community, which is also a super cool um, component. And I'm just so grateful to VEASAN and VCA for both continuing to support us and support our members for their pro training. Yeah, no doubt. So if you're listening to this and and maybe you were thinking about applying, just kind of keep that in your head for next fall. Um, it's a huge member benefit of being part of the A3. Talking about member benefits, tell us a little bit about the state of our membership and some of the benefits of becoming an A3 member. Yeah. Um, so right now, A3 members, we have just over 2,700 active members, which is exciting. And we've had really um, steady growth the last three years. And benefits for members have, I think, certainly expanded in the last couple of years. Uh, You still get a subscription to the Avalanche Review, which is, you know, kind of the trade and scientific journal for the industry and any updates that are relevant to rec users or avalanche professionals are really in that. So it's such a great resource. And thank you, Lynn Wolf, if you're listening and Mackenzie Long um, for continuing to edit and design such beautiful um, issues. Other benefits, we have a webinar series coming up this year that's free for members. And um, we would love, we're working on getting some funding behind that so we can have really impactful um, presenters. Uh, We're looking even outside the industry. So folks who maybe are doing really cool work that's not necessarily in the avalanche realm, but that relates and can resonate with our members. So stay tuned for webinars coming up. Um, The first one we'll do is on mental health, and that's actually probably happening before this goes live. Um, But check your member email, check our social for updates around webinars. We also have some pro deals again this season for members. So if you um, are an A3 pro or affiliate member, you get a code for Expert Voice and for IPA Collective, which have a bunch of brands that you can work with. Um, And then we have specific deals with Onyx, CalTopo. brands like that, Gordini, BCA, that kind of thing. We also have a grant program for any researchers. You can be a student or a practitioner doing research on snow and avalanches. And shout out to our two recipients who presented their research at ISSW. That was such a proud moment, I think, for the A3 team to see 
you know, you fund these projects and you hope that, you know, you get to see the end result. And it was exciting to see both Zach and Alex present at ISSW. We have our scholarship program, which we just talked about. Um, we also have a pro-employment list. So if you're looking at changing jobs within the industry or getting into the industry, you can visit our pro-employment list and members get a weekly email update with any new jobs that become available, which is kind of nice. It gives you a jump start on applying. And then also our resilience project, which I'm glad to mention this last because um, this up to this point, so not last year, but like since we launched the program in 2022, we've awarded nine resilience grants to teams doing trainings around mental health um, and stress and resilience. And we awarded three individuals grants for um, seeking mental health services. And those were individuals who were impacted by avalanche accidents and the trauma associated with them. And so I'm just super proud of that project. And um, yeah, if you're a member, you can apply for a a resilience grant um, or a team training grant. So those are kind of the benefits. Um, And I just, the membership is thriving and I'm so proud of the people that are in this community. And um, we're working really hard to do all we can to make your membership worthwhile and to be a great resource for Avalanche professionals. I think it's a I think it's a good thing to highlight as well that membership isn't just for professionals, right? Like there's a general membership category that anybody within the community, like you don't have to work in the snow and avalanche industry to reap some of the benefits of being an A3 member. So that general membership is open to anybody. Totally. And that's only $35, which is a screaming deal. And you get four issues of the Avalanche Review, all four issues of the Avalanche Review. Um, so it's really worth it. And, um, you know, I, yeah, can't recommend it enough. So I know my membership dues are due this, <laughs> this, uh, in the next couple of weeks. And one of the reasons that I like to renew my membership in December is because oftentimes there's a matching grant. And so I can I can um, add a little bit of money to my membership fees. And then right now that money will get matched by an anonymous donor. Is that right? Did I I get that right? Correct. Yes. Great job, Caleb. Um, Right now, (laughs) from now until the end of the year, we have an anonymous donor who is matching every donation up to $10,000. So if you add on a donation to your membership renewal, or if you just donate to A3, it's basically like double your donation. So if you donate 25 bucks, A3 gets 50 bucks, which is really, or gets another 25, so 50 total, um, which is really cool. So um, yeah, I we are looking for donations. A3 has had a huge year of growth. We are working really hard um, to continue that growth. And so support is greatly appreciated. And um, yeah, take advantage of that $10,000 match and help us reach our goal. And if you follow us on social media, you can watch that snow stake get buried and buried. And I hope it's a sign of um, a good winter ahead for all of us. Yeah, amazing. All right. Well, go donate to the American Avalanche Association right now. You can find them at AmericanAvalancheAssociation.org. You'll find everything you need there, plus more, plus many resources. Janie, thank you so much for everything that you do and your team does for the community. Um, it's strengthening things. And I'm just always amazed by how much work you all are doing behind the scenes often and, and can't thank you enough. You are very welcome, Caleb. And before I go, I just want to make sure that all the listeners of the Avalanche Hour are aware 
that you, Caleb, and the Avalanche Hour received the Sue Ferguson Award from A3 this fall at our member meeting. Um, And the Sue Ferguson Award is given to uh, individuals in the industry or outside the industry who have made significant contributions in media or communications around avalanches or snow. And the Avalanche Hour is certainly that. So congratulations. I know we had a fun um, kind of pseudo member party for you, but I think those listeners who have been with you for a long time will agree with us that it was um, much deserved. And I wish we could all give you a round of applause together, but maybe everyone can do that at home while they're folding their laundry and listening to this. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, huge honor. I'm super proud of receiving that. And and some other uh, awards were given that night as well, right? Like Jared Drake and Steven Sig, who were the uh, producers and directors of Buried, which if you haven't watched Buried, you should go watch it on Netflix right now because you yeah. can watch it on Netflix, which which is great. And then, of course, the Bernie Kingery Award was uh, given to uh, Doug Chabot and Janet Kellum. Huge, mm-hmm. huge honor for for those folks as well. So big deal. Um, yeah, big yeah, that deal. was super fun. Well, thank cool. you so much, Janie. It's great catching up as always, and hope you have a great start to your winter. You're welcome, and you too, Caleb. And I will see you on the dirt bike track or the ski trail, hopefully soon. There you have it. You heard it from Janie. Make your dollars go a little bit further in this time of giving and support the American Avalanche Association. You can donate on their website, AmericanAvalancheAssociation.org. Do it now. Support for this episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast comes from Beacon Guidebooks. Beacon has a library of 16 ski atlas guidebooks and 18 backcountry ski topo maps across five states. And they're growing. Beacon recently released the second edition of their popular field guide for avalanche search and rescue. What if the worst case scenario happens to you? The reality is, is that most of us cannot remember everything from all the classes and clinics we've attended. So this book is meant to help you be a valuable member of the team, whether you're a pro on a large scale rescue or a regular old skier in a group of three. The author, Alexis Alloway, has done the heavy lifting to provide an easy-to-read and highly curated quick reference tool that includes leadership and risk management reviews, search strategies, probing and shoveling methods, medical protocols, patient packaging and rigging diagrams, quick reference cards, and much, much more. This season, you can go to beaconguidebooks.com to take advantage of 25% off of orders of six or more copies for your patrol, rescue team, or guiding team. Enter the code AVSAR, that's A-V-S-A-R, to take advantage of their team discount for a book that is built to last. You can also reach out to them personally at orders at beaconguidebooks.com. If you want to hear a little bit more about this book, you can go back and listen to our episode with Alexis on episode 6.2. Without further ado, let's jump right into my interview with Katie Warren. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm doing great, Caleb. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. We're recording this on November 14th, and it sounds like you've been busy doing quite a few different things lately, um, managing some some races, some trail running races, and also getting some weather stations up and running for NWAC. Um, so yeah, how's your fall going? 
It's been good. Yeah, it's uh, we just had our last race of the season, so it feels good to take a break from that and think about snow and avalanches. Um, but it's a beautiful day here in Leavenworth and uh, looking forward to maybe some low elevation trail time. And uh, there's some snow in the high peaks. So it's really nice. Very cool. So, Katie, you have a, a pretty diverse array of, of background within the snow and avalanche world. Um, you have done a bit of research um, around your your master's thesis in geology uh, concerning snow and avalanches, as well as you've been an avalanche educator, a ski patroller at Stevens Pass, um, and you've done some highway forecasting for Highway 2 through Stevens Pass there. And and now you primarily work as a forecaster for NWAC. I was hoping you could just give us a little bit more of an introduction to yourself and and fill in some blanks for me there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it has it's been an interesting journey to get here. Um, but I think first I'm just really lucky that even though it was probably tough on the budget, that my parents weren't skiers, but they made sure that we got to go skiing and had the gear and drove us up through all sorts of fun conditions on I-90 to Alpenthal, uh, which is where I grew up skiing. And uh, yeah, kind of just fell in love with it. And it was a place to put, I always had a lot of energy as a kid, and it was a place to kind of focus that, that was fun and healthy. Uh, And from there, I really you know, kind of started toying with ski area boundaries, uh, as a lot of young adolescents do. And I remember being asked what the avalanche forecast was one day. And I was like, huh. And it was this first realization that like outside the boundary was different than inside the boundary. Um, And then, yeah, during college, I really kind of got into backcountry skiing and uh, really found this fascination with the snowpack and how the snowpack changes and evolves and grows throughout the season and how that impacts the avalanche conditions. So I wanted to explore that as part of my career. And uh, even though my undergraduate degree is in chemistry, I kind of worked in that for a bit and decided that I just really needed to be outside and I really needed to pursue something I was passionate about and uh, with that science background, that's how I kind of went to the master's degree route. I think we all know that the snow and avalanche industry is uh, doesn't have the greatest wages, and it can be insecure, you know, depending on season to season, how much snow there is. If you're working in some facets of the industry, that can be challenging. Um, so I really thought that completing a master's degree would be a way to add some security to it, and I could have this intellectual challenge that I enjoy a lot. And um, yeah, I was lucky to have mentors that really fostered my growth and helped point me in the right directions and help me uh, during those tougher times. Yeah. So you you got your master's at Central Washington University. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing with that that research. Yeah. So uh, there's a little bit there's two facets to it. There was um, basically we're doing a feasibility study on whether you could use geophones, which are simple seismometers to detect avalanche activity. And I was specifically working on paths that the DOT was familiar with uh, on I-90, working with Johnston Barris. And the other part of it is we were trying to measure glide avalanche 
um, rate and release on a frequent flyer glide avalanche path within the Alpental boundary. So um, they were the glide avalanche work didn't actually end up as part of my thesis. It was, as a lot of us know, they're a tricky avalanche problem, and I think that we the data did not support very good conclusions to the mechanics of what was going on uh, underneath the snowpack. And so we really focused on just the feasibility study for whether you could use seismic sensors as remote detection for avalanches, um, which was fairly successful. Um, Remote detection was fairly new uh, in the avalanche world at that time. This was around 2009, 2010. So people were doing things like this, but it has been really cool to see how much that has evolved and uh, what's happening in the industry at this point. Yeah. And so here's a question from John, actually. You know, he he says, and and you alluded to this, one of the first avalanche problems you focused on was the somewhat isolated and esoteric issue of glide avalanches. He's aware of the various difficulties with, with the studies, but he's wondering how that experience shaped your path toward becoming an avalanche professional. And what did you really take away from that experience and some of those challenges? Yeah, I alluded to some of the challenges, and I think I can sum it up by saying that uh, the results and what was going on with the speed and what would lead to the release of these avalanches didn't really match up with my like mental model of what was happening and that lubricated bed surface. Um, so I think it's just, you know, we don't truly under- understand the mechanics of some of these more unique avalanche conditions. And I think that's done two things for my career. It's kept me really curious and eager to learn and explore new ideas and research in snow and avalanches. And I think it's also made me pretty comfortable or maybe comfortably uncomfortable to say when I'm not sure what's going on or I'm surprised by something. Um, that's something that I've tried to you know, foster and bring with me is that sometimes we don't know the answers. And I think it's really important to be honest with yourself um, when you're not 100% sure what's going on and really um, treat that uncertainty with a lot of respect. So you're saying forecasters don't have all the answers all the time? <laughs> yeah, um, I we'd like to think we do sometimes, but I think that that is an important uh, idea is that sometimes we just don't know what's going on out there and we try our best uh, and we try to speak to those times when we don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, it's all about managing our uncertainty, whether no matter w- what side we are on the forecast, right? Whether we're the, the end user or the person putting out the forecaster, um, identifying those those areas of uncertainty and and managing that through hopefully terrain management, right? Um, yep. So a little bit after your master's degree finished up at, at uh, Central Washington University, you went up to the Chugach, right? And, and took part in the internship program at the Chugach National Forest Avalanche Information Center. Um, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your experience there and, and how that helped shape the rest of your career. It was amazing. I think, uh, the CNFAIC has put out um, a really solid internship program, and I've considered myself extremely lucky to be a part of it. Um, you know, I definitely my first uh, 
some of my first mentors came from there who I still get to chat with, um, particularly now in public avalanche forecasting. I still reach out to Wendy and um, yeah, it was just my really my first time working in the industry and being out there in the snow every day, um, which, as we all know, is the, some of the most important experience you can have uh, within our industry and uh, unique uh, to not particularly that winter up there you know they experience intermountain snowpack in alaska quite frequently but for me it was a very unique experience and we were kind of dealing with this repeating pattern of facets on a crust and we had lots of really large collapses and remotely triggered avalanches and shooting cracks and um you know i was out of my element and it was this wide-eyed experience with this different snowpack that I knew existed and heard about it and read about it and studied it intellectually, but had never really just been out there in it. And um, really cool way to learn about that and spend most of our season avoiding steep terrain. And, you know, at the end of the season, as like really the week before I flew back to Washington, we finally got to step out into some steeper terrain. So it was really, really huge learning experience. What did you learn specifically about communicating the avalanche hazard to the public. So like, you know, it's one thing to start to understand um, how to maybe forecast for yourself or for recreational outing, but, you know, like communicating that hazard to the public can sometimes be a challenge. And, And what did you learn from your experience there regarding that? Yeah, so a large part of the internship was uh, writing the observations for the day. And so kind of starting with that realm is just about how to, you're collecting so much information throughout the day and really distilling it down to those like concrete points that are really pertinent. And then making sure that it's communicated clearly and concisely because you can have all the technical jargon and everything perfect. But if you're not communicating it in a way that the public understands, it um, almost loses its point. So um, yeah, it really helped. And I really liked the way that they would kind of give me the observation for the day and I could write it and then they could kind of give me some tips and tricks and then I could take it back and distill it down a little bit more. And I think that that has really helped me as I have moved into public forecasting, both with just daily observations and the public forecasting products that get put out every day. Yeah. Um, So a big user group up there is the snow machiner use. Um, And were you able to hone some of your snow machine skills in the Chugach that, that winter? Um, yeah, I honed some skills and I also had a lot of mishaps, um, but it was really great. You know, the crew up there was super patient with me and, uh, I learned a lot about off-trail snowmobiling. Um, here in Washington, I used it a lot for just access, like sled access skiing and kind of up there, there's not a lot of groomed snowmobile trails or roads where we were, uh, traveling most of the time. And so, yeah, it was Good to learn the tips and tricks and have them there to uh, get me out of tough situations that I got myself into. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more in a bit about um, some of the zones that you forecast for now for NWAC, but pretty heavy motorized use in those zones. And so, um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, messaging to that user group here in a bit. But I wanted to pivot a little bit to kind of a neck another phase in your career 
was ski patrolling at Stevens Pass, right? And um, I was wondering if you could just kind of recall some of your favorite memories from from ski patrolling. What what uh what spoke to you about that job? Gosh, there's almost too many to count for good memories. Um, I think the initial ones that come to my mind is just kind of digging our way up to Cowboy Ridge, um, you know, in the early morning light and just being there, like the good energy with everybody and the professionalism that we took into avalanche control um, along with how fun it was. And then you got a good sunrise occasionally on Cowboy Ridge and sometimes you were just hunkered down in the snow and the wind. Um, But just a lot that uh, community aspect of patrolling is really huge. Um, and you just learn a lot looking at avalanches every day and triggering avalanches and going up there with your preconceived notions of what's going to happen that day. And then either they align or they don't. And you learn from it and you put that in your your mental model. So uh, other things too, I lived up there for five years um, of my patrol career. And so just every day in the snow from the start of the storm to the end with some control in there and uh, taking my dog on little short tours behind uh, what we called the patrol chateau. Um, it was just really an amazing experience of growth and learning and uh, lots of mentors in there too. Uh, in particular, Patty Morrison, uh, Clay Peterson, Jack and Dan. Um, they all really helped support me and were excited that I was eager to learn. And uh, they took advantage of that. And uh, it helped me out a lot, too. Yeah. And Stevens had a has a still has, I think, uh, a pretty robust avalanche education program kind of that's funneled through the patrol. Uh, did you get involved in that? Yeah. Um, you know, Patty was occasionally looking for instructors. And so there were uh, nice times when I got to step out of my ski patrol realm and go into education um, through both Stevens Pass and a local guiding company, Cascade Powder Guides, that I was also teaching for. And it was always really nice to step out of the avalanche control snow safety realm and get back into the roots of education and um get to kind of pass on uh, knowledge and information to this group of eager people that are uh, want to recreate in the backcountry and want to do it safely. So I always really enjoyed that. And Patty did a huge amount to get that program up and running at Stevens. So I think it's uh, really lucky that we've got that and it is still continuing up there. So I believe you, you arrived at Stevens Pass to ski patrol, um, you know, after the Tunnel Creek accident, which is a pretty high-profile accident, and if listeners aren't familiar with it, I'd recommend checking out the New York Times kind of multimedia um, project called Snowfall. Um, but I'm sure you felt some of the some of the changes in in vibe, or you know, like can you describe some of the changes that maybe happened at the ski area within that culture of 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 local skiers after that accident? Yeah, I think not only was there Tunnel Creek, but there's been some other notable avalanches that hit the community very hard. And uh, I think a couple things came out of it is just talking and learning and listening and just really developing a culture that you can support each other and you can be having a bad day and uh, you can talk about it with other people and 
while it was happened before I was up there, that pain kind of continues through the community and uh, it's this kind of collective grief. So it was uh, good to kind of be a shoulder for some of those folks, especially on the anniversary as it came up every year and just listening to their experiences. Uh, it was pretty painful. And then when we have other bad accidents or things that happen, just understanding that people have these old wounds that can open back up and uh, having a lot of empathy for that. I really like a lot of Laura Gladry's research into this uh, operational stress management um, because I think it's really important. And I think that these, you know, ideas of we need to like foster this good environment to allow people to have good days and bad days. And some days you're going to have to give them a little more space and pick up a little slack. And that's okay because one day you're going to be on that end of it. So I think that that was, that's been a huge part is just learning how to manage that stress for each other. Yeah, those are good points. So Stevens Pass ski area was, you know, pretty tightly linked to the highway forecasting that happens along Highway 2. And you had the opportunity to do some forecasting and avalanche mitigation for the highway throughout your ski patrol career and and then beyond, I believe. Talk a little bit about the uh, forecasting that goes into Highway 2 and what's involved there and, and some of the collaboration between the ski patrol and the highway forecasters? Yeah, there's traditionally been a lot of overlap between those two. A lot of us on the ski patrol would work as what we called on calls uh, for the highway, which is we're kind of going out as needed to help with uh, mitigation missions for the highway. Um, I think one of the interesting links is uh, not only the collaboration between those two uh, operations, but the uh, different scale it was really good as a learning experience for me to work with these different operations, sometimes doing control for both during the same day, storm cycle, um, and just see how um, the same storms would play out on those different scales and the different risk management strategies you would take um, because the scales are different and your assets at risk are different. So I think that that allowed me a little little taste of what I was going to get into with public avalanche forecasting, which is an even bigger scale. Fundamentally, how did you approach that challenge of of transition of scales? Uh, into backcountry forecasting? Yeah. Yeah, it was a challenge. And I don't think that I was surprised by the challenge, but I do think it was harder than I anticipated. Um, it was, I was going from this piece of terrain that I taught avalanche classes in and did, uh, avalanche controlling and recreated in to this, you know, large area that involved, uh, different drainages and microclimates and, you know, differences in snowpack as you went north to south and east to west. Um, and I think the biggest hang up that I always found myself struggling with is that confidence piece in the forecast. Um, so you're not going to open a piece of terrain in the ski area if you don't have decent confidence that you've mitigated the hazard for the day. Um, I find that this comes out when I'm, you know, either there's tricky snowpack conditions that are either widely variable or we're coming off of a storm cycle and we don't have a lot of information, but it's sometimes really hard to fit those that uncertainty and make your forecast fit into these boxes. Um, 
that are there. I use this the CNAH like we all do, um, and I think it helps deal with that uncertainty. But particularly on the like, I want to go. I think we should go to low, but I'm not a hundred percent sure because I'm dealing with a large zone. And uh, yeah, it's interesting to adjust your comfort level with being less confident in, and that's just a natural result of. Uh, public forecasting where you're dealing with much larger zones, there's always going to be increased certainty, uncertainties. So uh, yeah, it's been, it's been good to work through. And I have, again, some really good people I can feel very comfortable with saying, ah, I just don't know about today and kind of work through, through it with them and um, have some mentorship there to help me adjust my, uh, my own forecasting models to a much larger train scale. Yeah, I've spoke with Dallas Glass on the podcast before about kind of some of the inner workings of NWAC, and and it sounds like there's a lot of collaboration and a daily meeting amongst forecasters to that that is kind of a forum to hash some of these uncertainties out, right? Like, what's been your experience taking part in that, and and some lessons you've learned from from that sort of collaboration with other forecasters? Um, a lot of listening. Um, and like listening to what the more experienced forecasters and how they deal with their own uncertainty in their zones. And then I think we just have a really amazing group of people who nobody's in their forecast meeting, like I'm right. And there's no other opinions. It's really, uh, a good conversation. Um, sometimes that goes on a little too long before we <laughs> kind of, uh, come to a conclusion that's going to work for everybody. Um, not that we're aligning our forecasts right or different zones are different for obvious reasons. Um, but there is that piece where you don't step across the line of a zone and everything's different, right? That's just a line drawn on a map. And so making sure that everything makes sense and that there's like a uniform message and piece um, somewhere throughout the cascades uh, when it's applicable is really important. Um, and again, I don't think it happens on the days when it's really stormy and we're expecting big avalanches. Those are kind of the days that are easier. It's the days you're trying to, you're uncertain, you want to step out, but you don't have a lot of information because you're either coming off a storm or maybe there was an outlying avalanche that kind of surprised you and you're trying to fit that piece of data into the forecast. Um, but it's really helpful to have uh, four to five other people there to talk through it with. Yeah. And and just give us a reminder of, I mean, the NWAC, NWAC forecast for a huge area um, and lots of different zones. Just kind of remind myself and, and our listeners of how those zones are set up and, and where you're situated amongst those zones for your, for your public forecasting. Yeah. So I'm based out of Cleelum, Washington, which is just east of the Cascades along I-90. Um, and East Central and East South are my main forecast areas. I forecast for those every day that I'm writing. Um, and then I also fill in for East North and Snoqualmie, uh, which kind of actually helps um, when I'm thinking about those East to West, North to South trends. Um, so basically, um, on a normal day where I've got my two zones, I'm forecasting from Lake Chelan all the way down um, past Yakima, Washington, um, into the like Autanum and south of Highway 12 and all the way from the Cascade Crest to Mission Ridge on an east to west. So it's a uh, quite quite a bit of terrain to 
cover. And honestly, we couldn't do it without other partners such as DOTs and ski areas and guiding operations and public observations. Um, there's only so many of us in the field each day and we can get good info, but it's a lot of terrain to cover. So um, I spend a lot of time making phone calls and uh, following up on observations to make sure that I've got a good picture of what's going on. Yeah, so the the InfoX system has kind of exploded a bit in the Northwest. It seems like the Northwest is kind of a hot spot for the use of InfoX. Are are you all tapping into that, you know, kind of collaborating with guide services and and other folks that are using InfoX? Yeah, absolutely. I use InfoX every day. Um, It works better in some zones than others. Some zones, we just have more operations that are using it. Um, I'm pretty lucky Stevens Pass uses it. Um, our partners in the North Cascades use it. And then honestly, when I'm forecasting for the northern uh, northeast zone, um, I also look at what's happening in Canada as our nearest neighbor. So it's a very useful platform, um, as well as our own observation platform, which is changing a bit this year. And we're really excited about it, kind of um, developing an observation platform that works consistently throughout the U.S. for avalanche centers. So Definitely looking at both of those as really good sources of information. Yeah, great. Um, what else is kind of new for NWAC this this season? You mentioned the the new observation platform. Um, what else can you highlight for our listeners? Yeah, I think a couple things. And I should be clear, the observation platform is from the National Avalanche Center Um on that platform. And it's just really nice to integrate it into our system. It'll be the first year. So hopefully it goes as well as we want it to. Um, I think one of the big things for NWAC this year is there's going to be a change in our elevation bands. Um, We're moving away from um, below, near, and above treeline into actual elevation bands. And they will be different depending on what zone you're in. And I think it's a really good thing. I think that there is some subjectiveness to treeline that uh, using treeline as a metric that will be improved. And I think the communication piece to the public is going to be really, really important to get this right. Um, Because it will be weird to have those change as you move from zone to zone. But you also can be a bit more specific to your zone. Um, We're a bit unique that you can ski from 2,500 feet to 14,000 feet in uh, Washington, and we just can't forecast for that. Um, and so really letting people know that there is there's kind of a floor and ceiling um, to the information that we feel confident we can put out there that is useful to you. And it doesn't mean that if you're going above those elevations that our forecast is useless, but <laughs> it's uh, it means that there's just going to be increased uncertainty um, so I'm really excited to see how that plays out and just uh, the conversations that we had as a forecasting team around it, I think, were incredibly beneficial. Um, just talking about how we view train and looking at it from getting away from tree line and looking at it for concepts and how people are using the train and um, the aval- the particular avalanche paths and the exposure to weather um, as bigger factors in how we chose our elevation bands than just tree line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To really get the the most benefit out, out of an avalanche forecast, you really need to know how it's designed to work, right? And so um, just, I guess, a little plug for users of the forecast to really dig in and, 
and there's so many good resources on any Avalanche Center's website about how to actually read and utilize the forecast and put it into play um, in your recreational travels, right? Yeah, absolutely. And just uh, understanding that there's no magic lines, you know, that's, we didn't create this to say, oh, you were at 4,501 feet. So now the avalanche danger is different, like understanding that nuance and then understanding that um, using trees as a metric is probably not the only uh, the only thing going on. You know, there's lots of variability there and you could still have weak layers that developed at a certain elevation, but are still in open places within the trees. So I think uh, I think it's an overall improvement. Um, and I think NWAC really just sees everything um, on this national scale that hopefully hopefully we're trying things that are going to benefit the entire industry and all avalanche centers versus just NWAC. Um, so I think that's an important piece of this and the observation platform. Um, yeah, and then we also, I think it has launched. It will launch by the time this airs. Um, there's a new app that, is has been done in conjunction with the National Avalanche Center and the Sawtooth that will hopefully increase that user experience while viewing our forecasts on a mobile phone. And um, again, we hope that we can roll this out nationally to everybody and it will allow you to submit observations um, while you're out of service and then cache it and it will automatically upload um, and just create a little bit better interface so we're really excited to see uh, how that is used by the public and how we get to use it moving forward. And so could users input an observation like in the field, even if they're out of, even if they don't have cell service, right? Like input the observation and then once they get back into cell service, boom, it's uploaded. Yep, exactly. So you don't have to come home and do your observation. You can just start making dinner and um, have a beverage and enjoy your evening and your observation was done at the time you took it. And that includes uh, photos that you took out there in the fields. You can automatically upload them. So I think I think that is a huge improvement. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I so often forget you know, several things by the time I hit my car at the end of a ski tour and usually forget my name if I see something shiny. So um, that's super <laughs> helpful, I think, for, for people out in the field. Um, let's talk a little bit about your forecasting for the East Slope South Zone. So what's the primary user group down there? So, yeah, it's a really heavily motorized community. Um, and it's been great. Um, you know, the outreach has been interesting and really eye-opening. Um, people are always really nice. Like the motorized community, they'll stop, chat, invite you along. They'll, they're always willing to give you a hand, um, which has really been awesome. And I felt very welcomed. Um, I am, you know, sometimes out there by myself. And it's really nice to say like, hey, you can just tag along with us and, uh, you know, a lot of people are riding things that I'm not going to ride and I can just hang out and watch and uh, chat with them. And they'll come up and ask me like, oh, what are you digging in the snow for? And I can kind of tell them what I do and why I'm out there. And they're just really interested and eager. Um, that does come with like a lot of people are out riding with their families and trail riding and they don't think they're interacting with 
avalanche terrain when actually they might be under avalanche slopes or um, exposed in other ways or maybe riding on slopes that are avalanche terrain, but they're not familiar with it. And so kind of just um, getting a feel for that experience level and talking with them and they're just super open to learning. And that has been like really great experience. I felt very welcomed. Um, I'm definitely not the best snowmobiler, but <laughs> they're also eager to help me and kind of teach me tricks and techniques. Um, not a very big person, so I need all the the technical skills for snowmobiling that I can get. Um, and so it's just really been this like mutually beneficial relationship down there. And really, I haven't spent a lot of time down there before forecasting for NWAC, and it's really amazing like you can snowmobile on a groomed trail to seven thousand feet and on a clear day like look into the goat rocks and have these just incredible views of the cascades um along with kind of riding levels in the area for every skill level from like really big open flat meadows to steep uh really steep bowls to ride in so it's been been a cool experience i've really enjoyed working with that community and uh Hopefully they're getting some of uh, some things out of it and reading our forecasts and um, getting the education and engaging. And, and what's your sense of like how much engagement is happening? Like it sounds like they're pretty eager, but like folks that you come across, uh, you know, a random family or something, are they uh, are they aware of the avalanche forecast? Have they read it? You know, like have you gleaned some insight from that? Yeah, I actually have this funny story. I was kind of, there's a family riding around and I kind of snowmobiled up and said hi. And they were like, oh yeah, you guys are the ones with the map with the colors. And I was like, yep, that is us. Um, (laughs) uh, But like kind of funny, they knew who we were are and they wanted to know more information. Um, And I think too, like a lot of them have the gear, but there's just just disconnect between the information and how to use it. and I have only, you know, this is going into my third season forecasting, and uh, I was hired partially to kind of turn the lights on down there in East South before it had just been gray for a number of years because we didn't have the information. So I think even in two years, I've seen a lot more engagement. We're getting some observations from that zone, and we know it's going to be a long process, but we also, you know, seeing that momentum already starting to pick up and kind of a return on me being down there and engaging and talking to people has been really awesome. So I think that hopefully that continues to grow. And what we typically see is it kind of grows on an exponential level. Somebody tells somebody and, you know, that kind of game of telephone. And then all of a sudden we've got a lot of people engaging with NWAC and our forecasts. And um, that's my hope. That's my goal as a forecaster being down there is um, be respectful and just gain some relationships and help them uh, ride safer and still be out there playing around and having fun. Yeah, it seems like NWAC does a great job of kind of the trailhead outreach, right? Setting up, you know, I, I think maybe a majority of it happens at the higher use backcountry ski touring, um, you know, zones, kind of trailheads there. But uh, is is that sort of thing happening on the east slopes as well? Yeah, it's been great to have the nonprofit side of our organization really engage and be willing to put the money out to send people to these far reaching places. And, uh, you know, we just had our training last week, our beginning of the season, and they were just asking us, like, where do you want to see trailhead outreach locations? So, 
you know, it's always a balancing act between resources and what we can do. But uh, we, uh, with our motorized community, we get out on what we call club rides. And so we're basically just joining a snowmobile club and being like, hey, yeah, I'm here in Forecaster with NWAC. And we're just tagging along um, to answer your questions about whatever we're doing. So kind of engaging with that community in a different way than the trailhead outreach, um, which has been really good. Um, it's kind of hard to stop. You know, a lot of the snow parks, you're already like, your sled's warmed up. You're trying to get out of the snow park. It would be hard to just stop and chat at a tent. Um, so it's been nice to engage differently with that community, but still really um, interact with them. And uh, again, they've just been really open and stoked to have us along. So Katie, you mentioned earlier, you know, the use of the CMAH. And if people don't know what that is, that's the conceptual model of avalanche hazard. And so... How has that influenced your work as an avalanche forecaster in communicating hazard? I think just consistency. Um, We really, as a forecasting centers across the U.S., right, you want to be consistent with your forecasts. And I think that the CMAH, uh, you get to be able to do that and you can take this model and you can scale it larger or smaller and make it work for your operation um, while still being consistent, right? Moderate hazard still means moderate hazard. And um, I I know we fall back on that. Um, I kind of mentioned, you know, we're trying to put nature into these neat little problem boxes with certain hazard ratings. And there's times when it just doesn't fit that well. And I, what I really like about the CMAH is you can like address your uncertainty and pinpoint where it is and build that into your hazard assessment for the day. Um, And I think also just communication between other forecasters, we have a consistent language to communicate in, um, is really important. So yeah, I think it is kind of the center point of how it has influenced uh, public avalanche forecasting. Yeah, it's certainly been somewhat of a game changer in in consistency as I see it as well. Um, Kind of a a cornerstone of forecasting um, for many facets of of snow and avalanches. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think too, uh, at this recent ISSW, there was a lot of great presentations on consistency. So I think we obviously all see that there's room for improvement and I'm really excited to see this research into kind of quantifying where we can improve and hopefully development of new tools. So where we kind of see, we're like, ooh, this one's, this is like that sticky situation where we don't always do it the same and finding out um, ways to do that and improve the consistency throughout the the U.S. and everywhere. I think that's really important. Katie, you've been fortunate enough to work in several diverse areas within the snow and avalanche arena within a a pretty short career, right? Like this all started for you, what, 10 or 12 years ago. And, and so, um, what, what have been some challenges and successes that have, that have kind of attributed to your rise to be a public forecaster at a fairly young age? Yeah, I think, I just was really dedicated and I worked really hard, probably too hard at points in time, trying to take on too much. And I think that was both a benefit and a challenge. Like, I think I learned a lot from that. Um, 
And I consider myself very lucky to have like made it <laughs> as a backcountry forecaster at this point, because I'm not sure I could have kept up teaching avalanche classes, working for the DOT and working as a full time patroller, you know, for another five or 10 years. I think that would have been uh, very challenging. Um, the work life balance in our career is always going to be challenging. But really getting to a point where you're like, okay, like, I can take a step back and also enjoy skiing for myself and ski with my friends and kind of set work aside for a little bit. Um, that's always been like one of my bigger challenges. So, um, well, it's allowed me to learn and grow a lot and um, be in a place where I can be a backcountry forecaster. Um, I also like kind of hope as we have kind of developed these educational guidelines and stuff that other uh other aspiring professionals might not have to work, you know, 60, 70 hours a week um, to reach their goals. <laughs> but it uh, has also taught me a lot. So and I'm just very appreciative and humble that I have had really good mentors along the way to um, bounce ideas off. And they can they took my silly questions um, in stride and answered with honesty and help me kind of just learn and understand how snowpack develops and avalanches release and um, those sweet spots to throw the charge and everything that have just developed my understanding. How have you leveraged your experience and your voice to promote a, a more diverse and inclusive snow and avalanche community? Um, you know, and, and any advice for younger women entering the, the stream within the, within the avalanche community? Yeah, that's great. I am a huge proponent of like supporting these underrepresented groups uh, in our industry and at really everywhere. Uh, I think, you know, there's kind of two sides of it. I think personally, um, just trying to slow down and listen. Um, I think we all have a lot to say. And I think that just that slowing down and really listening to the individuals that are like feel marginalized or underrepresented is really going to be where we learn a lot. Um, I remember having a conversation on a long trail run uh, with a former colleague that just made me realize how the same workplace can look so different from a different perspective. And uh, I'm just trying to seek out and listen to everybody's individual experience because um, we all know that a more diverse group makes better decisions. So as our industry diversifies, I think that we can see um, improvements that we wouldn't even realize. Um, and then kind of on the professional end, um, I'm carrying on the tradition of the Avalanche Divas, which I'm really excited about. Uh, Olive handed that torch to me, and I'm really honored to be able to continue to support, support women avalanche professionals um, so those of you who might not know, we, um, we're under the umbrella of the American Avalanche Association, um, but we're just an organization that celebrates women avalanche professionals who have made these incredible contributions to our industry. Um, so and we also just have a place for gathering to network and connect at Divas Night, which is hosted at ISSW. So we'll be looking forward to that in Tromso. Um, but I just really like giving women a space to chat with each other. And once you start talking to other women and like, oh, yeah, OK, I, I see. I feel that. Right. And just that connection is really important. Um, 
I think the other big thing, which, again, I've been lucky to be a part of some really amazing organizations, but I've been able to actively take part in diversity, equity, inclusion training through both NMAC and A3. And it's so important that we put this training at the top of our list. Um, It's just essential that we put in the effort to work on these issues. They're so entrenched. And I think You know, the flip side is we're going to stumble and we're going to make mistakes. And the key is to keep trying and a little bit of empathy and effort will go a long way. And I think that um, when these other, you know, women and BIPOC and LGBTQ communities, like we want to make them feel welcome in our industry. And um, the more we can do that, I think just the better our industry is going to be as a whole. And um, it's just really rewarding to see people come back and thank you for that, right? Just say like, hey, you really made me feel comfortable. Really, no matter who that is in our industry, that's a huge part of it. It's a huge part of developing a good culture and a huge part of people being able to be comfortable learning and asking questions that they're scared to answer because they don't want to feel dumb. You know, like you're going to... If you give them an environment where they're comfortable, they're going to be able to um, have a better learning environment and develop their mental models um, more efficiently. Yeah, well said, Katie. Well said. Um, Talk about some of your other involvements with the A3. You've been on the board for a number of years now, right? Yeah, this is my fifth year as a board member, so I'll be uh, termed out at the end of next year. Um, It's really been a great time to be a part of A3. We've grown a lot. Uh, I joined the board kind of right after we uh, completed the pro-rec split. And that was a huge undertaking for such a small organization. It was really expensive. It took a lot of energy and a lot of resources. And it left A3 fairly burned out. And... um, I think we had a lot of new energy that came to the board then and really allowed us to continue that momentum and um, develop new programs. Like we've got the resiliency program. We've expanded our grants and our scholarships. We've brought TAR into the digital format online. And just all of these things wouldn't have been possible without great leadership. Um, You know, Dan Cavaney, Janie Thompson-Nolan, like the executive directors as well as Halstead and now Scott, just really good leadership made that possible. And I've been honored to be a part of the process. Um, one thing I was excited about and that I hope to see repeated is that um, I developed kind of a survey about who A3 is as a membership. And I remember the conversation just kind of being like, well, do we know like what our members are doing, you know, kind of just who we are as an organization. They hadn't done it before. And so it was really exciting to kind of just take that. And it was fairly simple, but just a survey. Um, And it's good to have a baseline. It'll be nice to revisit that and then kind of look at like, oh, you know, diversity can't be like pared down to just numbers. But I think you can see an increase in diversity and just more membership and more younger professionals engaging with A3. I think you can see that growth in these type of surveys. And so, and hopefully it's positive when we go back to revisit it. Um, But I feel like it's in a really good spot uh, to continue the growth. We've got amazing leadership and um, I'm excited to pass the, my board member spot on to the next person. Great. Here's a question from Dallas Glass. Um, 
He says, you've spent the past several years serving our national community at A3. We often think about bringing our local perspective and knowledge to the national projects, but how has this worked in reverse for you? What are some lessons you've learned at A3 that you can bring to your work at NWAC? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think one thing was just listening to other professionals from other organizations and uh, just kind of that networking piece of it, um, just kind of picking up on tidbits and knowing what was happening in other regions. We can get so entrenched in our own little regions because we're so busy. Um, but having that bigger picture is really important for how you want to guide your organization that's part of this bigger avalanche community. So I think that's been huge. Um, and then just being on the board of a nonprofit and thinking about things in terms of resources and what you want to what benefits you want your um, members to have and just thinking about like what the avalanche community needs as a whole right when you look at the big picture again you can just bring it back to your organization and say well hey like this resiliency program was really good or like hey there's these resources at a3 if you know um, maybe they can help with this um, project that we have, uh, right? So that that information street and that collaboration definitely goes both ways. Um, and I think A3 is great also at kind of hearing and engaging with all of the smaller avalanche centers and guiding operations. So it's really cool to see um, that scale of work that's being done um, through both the national level and all the small organizations' contributions to it. Yeah. Oftentimes I think of it as kind of the lifeblood of the of the community within the U.S. at least, you know, um, such a strong organization. And it's been, like you said, it's been so cool to, to see it grow and strengthen, um, especially over the last five or 10 years here. Katie, any pivotal moments within your career that have been major lessons learned for you that you'd care to share with, with the listeners? Um. There's been there's been a lot. Um, I think overall, I would just stay interested and humble and be curious. I think one big humbling experience for me was uh, after a long night <laughs> with the DOT in the ski area. It had been a short dry period. There was a crust everywhere. You know, we're all pretty eager. And kind of all my results, even in terrain that was rarely skied, really just showed like a good underlying or a good bond to the underlying crust. And uh, same with the DOT, like minimal results. And uh, but, you know, I'm tired. I've been up all night and my partner and I were just grabbing a short ski tour. And but we'd moved a little bit east and uh, kind of just turned off my brain. I let my guard down and, um, you know, lots of human factors involved you know, tired, just trying to get some some last non-working powder turns in before catching up on some sleep. And uh, the particular route that we went up um, toward this peak called Arrowhead, it kind of brings you up low-angle train, and then you kind of tic-tac back up the ridge. And uh, at one moment, my partner was a little bit in front of me, and you're doing those tiny ridge switchbacks, and he was just a little bit out on a southerly aspect, um, which I hadn't really been on that day. And the entire slope ripped out down to the crust. Um, and luckily, you know, travel techniques, we were on low angle terrain, but it was just this wake up call that we, I did not know what was going on. And I had gone a little bit east and stepped out of 
an environment that is heavily skied and controlled and um, didn't really recheck my conditions. And, uh, you know, it was not an aspect we were looking to ski that day, but it didn't really matter. We turned tail and ran. And I was just glad that, you know, it did not pull back up into that low angle terrain. And we like watched it rip down and shake a bunch of trees. And, um, you know, I was a young patroller at the time and it was just a very eye-opening and humbling and a lesson in spatial variability and how things can change over really short distances. Um, and you should always, uh, keep your, keep your head on your shoulders and be looking in the snow. Even if you think you've got a good understanding of what's going on, um, as you move into new terrain, you gotta gotta reassess. How about in, in terms of like ski patrolling, doing avalanche mitigation or avalanche mitigation for the highway? Um, do you remember a time when you were just like totally surprised by a by a result that you got? This is kind of funny. It is the opposite. I was com- I was surprised by a result I did not get, and it was a particular night, uh, fairly classic. It was a storm. It was about to change to rain. Um, we had, I was working a night shift at Stevens and uh, my supervisor from the DOT called me and we had a slide in the road and I got permission from Scaria. I left, we did a howitzer mission and nothing slid. <laughs> and we're like, okay. And just this realization that was like, okay, like our, like our timing wasn't right or whatever, um, the case was but we kind of just we knew we knew it was bad news like well like this is not gonna last like gosh should we we had natural activity that hit the road like it made sense to do control but we needed like maybe we needed to wait longer i don't know it was a kind of a strange experience there was a lot of ice involved with that storm so we had some sleet and some kind of you know funky weather patterns and uh sure enough the next day um like we had closed the highway and like got people out of the ski area, which is always a really important factor. Like people drive under these avalanche paths to and from Stevens. So you don't want people stuck under them and you don't want, you know, thousands of people stuck at a ski area either. So kind of that piece of it is pretty important. But I think after that, the highway was closed for multiple days in a row um, for what I was mem- remember on both sides. And so we were kind of just stuck at our little patrol chateau for a handful of days. Those are fun memories to look back on and, and probably at the time you were all scratching your heads a little bit and, and, uh, yeah, some, some surprising non-results. So, so then after, after you guys shot and didn't get any results, did, did things rip down onto the highway? They did. Yeah. And we pretty much just, uh, at that point had closed it and we're like, well, we're just going to let this play out and then we're going to clean up the aftermath. Um, Because it's hard, you know, particularly when you have you mix in some freezing rain and ice, which uh, Stevens has that east flow component. So freezing rain is not uncommon up there. And that's a little bit tricky. You know, you're kind of putting this glaze on top of the snowpack and then like it's going to like it complicates that water percolation through the snowpack. And it makes it a little more difficult to, I think, time those uh, control missions. So I think sometimes the right call is just. saying, hey, we're not, we don't feel confident and our risk mitigation for this is going to be to close it and wait. And, you know, since I've moved to NWAC, there's been um, a couple of these huge east side storms, which have resulted in similar closures of all of our major highways. Um, Just, I think, what was it, two years ago, 
we had a storm early January that, I mean, I couldn't leave my house. I had to like shovel my way out of the front door and we had lowland avalanche concerns. And, you know, there's just no way to mitigate that risk when you're talking about um, a major highway or a ski area, right? It's just, okay, like, we're just going to have to let this play out and come back when we feel safe entering any avalanche train again. Oh, man. Yeah. I remember seeing some videos just from Leavenworth. I think Matt Promomo put some videos out of just like walking through his neighborhood and just like tapping the side of a little bank, you know, and and everything was avalanching just from the tap of a ski pole, you know. Yeah, it was it was wild to witness it and just be a part of it. And uh, interesting, you know, to be a very new forecaster during that storm cycle, too. Um, yeah, I was it, just a whole new world. And it was, you know, early January. So I'd been, you know, writing forecasts for all of about six weeks. <laughs> and uh, how do you, you know, it, again, when things are just gonna, everything's gonna slide, it's almost an easier forecast to write. But I remember I did not get a lot of sleep that night. <laughs> Katie, what takes up most of your time in the non-snowy months of the year? Um, I am part owner and race director for a trail running company. Um, so, and it, you know, since I'm owner and race director, it actually, I still work on it in the winter. I just get a little, little bit of a break from the big events, but it's, uh, kind of fell into this race directing thing basically because I love trail running and, uh, it's been really, really cool experience to just like watch people, especially like into our ultra distances, but also just to get people who've never run a 5K and or never run anything on trails. And it's fun to put on these events and get stoked uh, all summer. And I still get to be out in the mountains. So it's pretty cool. And, you know, we've got everything from 5Ks to 100 miles. So got a lot of options and um, been a really fun, also challenging, but uh good experience uh in the outdoor industry yeah very cool and and for people of all ages right you have some kid runs and and uh seems like a wide variety of distances and an event for just about anybody yeah definitely our kids runs are always really fun um they're free we just have them at all of our races and kind of variable distances but we have everybody from like parents carrying one and two year olds to like you know the like six and seven year olds who are like in it to win it um but it's really fun to see the kids and the energy and just uh get them outside running around oh very cool what's the name of your company and where can people find out more about that um, it's evergreen trail runs and you can just, uh, find us at evergreentrailruns.com. Well, Katie, thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing some of your experiences. You know, I read your forecast quite often when I'm in the Lalawas cause y'all are pretty much upstream from us. So, um, super helpful to, to read your products and, and helping me, um, see what's maybe coming down the line for us. So, um, yeah, thanks so much for taking part in this interview and it's been great to get to know you a little bit and hear about some of your experiences. Uh, it's been fun. Thank you, Caleb. Really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. All right. We'll have a great start to your winter and we'll, we'll, uh, talk to you soon. We hope you enjoyed that episode with Katie Warren. Thanks for listening. 
Katie wanted to mention that she forgot to give credit to some of the other collaborators and authors of the A3 census survey that she mentioned in the interview. Other authors included John Stamberis, Ava Latuso, and Halstead Morris. Music on today's episode was written and performed by Gravy. You can find more of his tracks at gravytunes.bandcamp.com and you can find him on Instagram at gravy.tunes. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Thanks, Mike. Check out more of his work on his website, miket.com. Don't forget to give us a follow on the socials. You can keep up to date on latest release of the podcast. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. If you're enjoying the show, subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you listen to it on. We really appreciate those reviews that come in via Spotify or iTunes, so keep them coming. If you have any feedback for the show, make sure to send us an email to theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com or you can find a form on the website, theavalanchehour.com. While at the website, if you enjoy what we're doing here and want to help support us, there's a donate button on the website that you can make a donation to help sustain our operations at the Avalanche Hour podcast, just like Angela Staup does every month. Angela's uh, on the board of the Payette Avalanche Center and director of fundraising and sponsorship. And Angela, we sure do appreciate your contributions to, to helping to make this podcast a reality. Thanks for your support. You've got a couple more days to buy your tickets for the Avalanche Alliance sweepstakes. If you haven't heard about the Avalanche Alliance sweepstakes, you can go to www.avalanche-alliance.org and find out more or check out our last episode featuring John Farian of Live Large Universe. You'll hear all about it and the great prizes that you could win with the Avalanche Alliance sweepstakes, including a brand new... Polaris Snowmobile, amongst some other great prizes. Check it out. Make sure to tune in next week on December 15th as Sean Zimmerman Wall hosts his first podcast episode of the season and he'll be featuring Emily Drinkwater as a guest. Um, You're not going to want to miss that one. I know I'm excited to hear it. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and always have fun.